You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who is a current Marine still serving on active duty with an amazing foundation that can benefit veterans and current service members. More on that coming up in a moment, but of course, some homework for you guys to do. That is to remind you, Apple Podcast Reviews, we're about halfway to 1,000, so keep them coming. It is so easy, guys, to leave a review. You can do it right from your smartphone. It doesn't have to be a long one, and you can just even leave us five stars and move on. We certainly need all those to keep this podcast growing and keep it continuing to, uh, to, to grow this Hazard Ground community. So again, Apple Podcast Reviews, very, very simple and very easy. Also, we just made another donation from what we've earned through our partnership with Amazon. You've heard me tell you about it every single week. You know, the one where you go to our website, hazardground.com, click on that Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You do all your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities. Well, we have donated to Guitars for Vets. If you remember a few episodes back with Nick Rucker, he is a veteran, a country musician, and ambassador for Guitars for Veterans, which provides veterans struggling with physical injuries, PTSD, and other emotional distress a unique therapeutic alternative Guitars for Vets pursues its mission to share the healing power of music by providing free guitar instruction, a new acoustic guitar, and a guitar accessory kit in a structured program run by volunteers primarily through the Department of Veterans Affairs Facilities and Community-Based Medical Centers. So we are very happy and so glad we could contribute to their mission, even in just a small way, because it's you, the listeners, who are supporting our Amazon campaign and that has certainly allowed us to make that donation. So thank you very much, and we are glad to support Guitars for Veterans. Also a reminder, all of our video episodes that you're watching right now, and you may just be listening to the audio version, but if you don't know about our video program, of course, you can get it on our YouTube channel and Killcliff's YouTube channel and the Killcliff app. But also now, all of our video episodes are available on our website, hazardground.com, so you can go there as well. Remember, keep up with everything that we have going on with the website, hazardground.com, but now also you can get all the video episodes there as well. Now let's get to this week's guest, who is a current active duty major in the Marine Corps. He has two deployments to Afghanistan and another one to Australia. He has a Bronze Star with Valor and a Purple Heart, and he is also the founder and president of Patrol Base Abate, which is a support organization that offers free-of-cost retreats in big sky country, and it is named after Sergeant Matthew Abate, who was awarded the Navy Cross for his actions when he was killed in action in Afghanistan. He is Thomas Schumann joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Tom, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Great for you to be with us. Uh, I have never been to Big Sky Country, so I'm excited to find out how I can get a free trip. Just kidding. Uh, that said, uh, an amazing organization. And, you know, I spent some time reading Sergeant Abate's uh, citation for his Navy Cross. Uh, yep. Just incredible, incredible uh, heroism and, and the things he did to keep his fellow Marines alive were certainly uh, uh, noteworthy and, and God, just a, sounds like an amazing soldier. So uh, we will hear more about Patrol Base Abate coming up. But start back at the beginning for you and how and why you ended up in the Marine Corps. Sure. My story, I think, uh, is pretty boring, but we'll, we'll, we'll do we'll, – you're the host. So <laughs> uh, I, 9-11 happened, and uh, I was in high school. And I – It's what's incredible is that the Naval Academy is I – you know, I teach all these midshipmen and they're like, well, I was five years old and I went to the air show and I knew I was going to be a Marine jet pilot. I'm like, I was five years old, pick my boogers, 
watching Teenage Ninja Turtles, like, and didn't have anything in my life figured out. And so somehow all these people that I, uh, you know, teach all, all had their life figured out well before me. And I don't, I don't have family history in the military. Never up until that day, I had no aspirations uh, or idea that I would join the military. That day happened that I said, Oh, I gotta do something about that. Knowing nothing about the military being as boot as you could possibly be. Uh, uh, I didn't know what that would, how that would shape up. Uh, I went to Loyola, Loyola alums here on the call uh, right. all around and they had an RTC program. I didn't even apply on time. I didn't get the scholarship, but I just showed up and I said, Hey, you guys do something about the military. I think that's what I'm trying to do. And they said, uh, yep. Go to this little fake boot camp week up in Great Lakes Naval Base, running around. And by the end of that week, I said, Well, I've been hanging out with the Navy guys, and there's a couple Marine guys, and I think the Marines probably is a better fit for me. Uh, and and so it it and then there's a there's a civic duty aspect in that uh, my mom, did, you know, uh, had me when she was 19, uh, became a Chicago cop, worked her ass off and provided me opportunities that she never had for herself. And then uh, we went from being very, very poor uh, food stamps, living in cockroach infested apartments on the South side of Chicago to, uh, you know, I went, was able to go get a a halfway decent education at at, at some point, something that she could have never dreamed of for herself. And I said, you know, uh, at at 17, 18 years old, this this is a pretty special place that that you can that that someone can go out and and, and work and create opportunities um and i think you know america is like a bank if everybody takes something out and no one puts something in it doesn't work that way right and so someone's got to put those deposits in and i felt uh some specific duty to go put put a deposit in i gotta ask you uh, who is your favorite ninja turtle yeah, it would be Leonardo. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, more of a Donatello guy, but that's just because yeah. he was really good in the video game. But anyway, sure. uh, so no background in, in the Navy or in the Marines. What was it about the Marines that you said that this fits me better? Why was What was the draw? I think my story is one of what where are the higher standards, where's the greatest challenge, I, I think. Um, and it was just I was – freshman or fourth class, whatever you want to call it in ROTC. And I looked at the seniors who are Navy and seniors who are Marines. And I said, I think I'm smoking what they're rolling. I'm picking up what they're putting down (laughs) and, uh, you know, went that way. And then I got the TBS still not knowing much about the Marine Corps. uh, And I saw the infantry officers and the non-infantry officers. And I said, I think there's something about them that, appeals to me and then i also saw my peers who said they wanted to go infantry and on the first cold night that we had out in the field in, in quantico they said oh i don't want to do any of that anymore and i said well if you don't want to do any of that anymore i do want to do that because you don't want to do it uh and that's you know same thing that's how i ended up going to recon that's why i ended up at georgetown you know for graduate school it's just what where's the next big challenge where are those standards what can get me out of my comfort zone and i, I think that was is is kind of always the the appeal for me now i forgive me for not being so familiar with the naval selection between who goes marines and who doesn't but was it you decided to go marines and there was no objection did you have to earn your certain weight through rtc to get to be a marine or 
Uh, was that automatically just what you chose and they gave to you? You, so if you're squared away and not all fucked up like a football bat like I am, I think you apply your senior year and you get you come in the program as a Marine option. Now, you still have to go to officer candidate school and pass officer candidate school to ultimately get that commission. Um, but since I didn't apply until a couple weeks into my freshman year, for two years, I submitted to the Marine Board. They said, your GPA sucks. Your pull-ups <laughs> suck. Uh, you know, and they – and so – I thought I wasn't going to get the scholarship actually. And so I went down to the officer recruiter in downtown Chicago and I said, Hey, uh, because you, if you don't pick it up by your junior year, you don't get it. And it was my sophomore year and I still hadn't picked it up. And so uh, I went and I did this called PLC juniors and I went down there for six weeks and to Quantico and on graduation day, my, my assistant Marine officer instructor, who was at Loyal and Northwestern came up to me because he was down there acting as a sergeant instructor and said, Hey, just so you know, you got the scholarship. I knew you had the scholarship, but I also thought you could use some extra training. So I let you ride it out here for the last six weeks. Uh, and you didn't have to do this because now you have to go again next summer anyways with ROTC. And I'm like, great. Well, good. <laughs> I am. I could use remediation, so it's fine. So you graduate uh, and you head off to, up to OCS uh, for the Marine Corps. Did you know exactly how hard that was going to be, or was it not that hard for you? ROTC or ROCS? Your OCS. I mean, I was in ROTC. I know how hard it's not. I mean, you know, it's it's, ROTC is ROTC. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But, I mean, OCS seems to be a little bit more difficult than ROTC was. Yeah, so, (laughs) yep, just a couple early, you know, the hardest part about hardest part about ROTC is just being hung over going and drilling, you know? So I think that was always the hardest part <laughs> for me with, with ROTC, uh, with, with, with OCS, when I went in 06, uh, it was pretty hard. I think it had a 50% attrition rate. Um, I am not inherently a squared away guy. And so I always need a little extra training to, be squared away. And so I think, uh, you know, there was a 50% attrition rate in, in the summer of six. When I came back in the summer of 07, we were, you know, we we're doing the surge and, and there was a new CO down there at OCS. And it, I did notice it was a little kinder and friendlier officer candidate school. Uh, I think we needed to meet some of those numbers. And I mean, OCS, you run fast, yell loud, run fast, yell loud. And if you could run fast, yell loud, you'd probably be okay. <laughs> so when you graduate from uh, OCS and you're done with ROTC, what, what year month is it? I did two summer packages. So, I, I mean, my last thing to OCS, it was July 07. And then I, but I started to do my senior year before I uh, – commissioned in, in, in May of 2008 and probably that senior year was significantly harder than OCS because I one 
dropped so many courses throughout my first three years that I had to take 21 credit hours my fall and spring semester plus ROTC and my metabolism slowed down my senior year. And I all of a sudden, and I didn't realize that I was getting fat uh, until my gunny started to give me some good morning incentive training. Uh, and, uh, so between my gunny giving me some inspections, uh, a couple times a week and then PT me and 21. So that, that was actually that, that last year, my senior year was, was pretty tough, but, uh, that was all my own doing. Um, so yeah, uh, commission May, 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 2008. All right. So what, where do you go next? What happens next? Cause you don't end up in deployment until late 2010. So where do you go first? The basic school where every Marine officer starts. And I think it's great foundational. It's basic and I, it provides every officer in the Marine Corps a baseline on leadership and a basic understanding of the responsibilities of a rifle platoon commander. So, you know, our lawyers are there, our pilots are there. And so I think it's, there, there's value. Um, I didn't love it. But it, to me, it was really a stepping stone to what I wanted to get to because at some point I did start to really want to be an infantryman uh, in probably a month or two into my time down there that I was very uh, – every time I met with the captain who was in charge of our platoon, he'd say, you know, what do you want to do? Infantry, infantry, infantry. And uh, so to me it was just a stepping stone to get to kind of where I wanted to get to, which was IOC and – uh, so um, immediately following the base of school, officers will then go to their MOS schools to whatever respective community they're in. Uh, so I just went right across the street there in Quantico over to the infantry officers course. And so there's a series of me like, kind of like just stumbling through things, kind of just 9-11 happens. And then I go show up to this ROTC unit. And then uh, when I was out running wild in the woods out there at IOC, uh, at some point I said, yes. I didn't know for many years. I've just kind of little like a bumblebee, you know, just bumbling around, hitting, you know. But now I, I am, I am in fact right where I should be doing exactly what I should be doing. And uh, I guess it was still an assumption because that assumption I don't think is confirmed until you're under fire. Uh, but I think uh, at some point shoot machine guns and rockets and ground fighting and, and running wild through the Quantico woods. I, I said, yes, this is, I think this is what my calling is actually. Right. So then you end up going to a three, five Marines, which is a, a historic, very notable Marine unit in camp Pendleton. Um, you know, we've interviewed several people on the, on the show who were part of that unit over the course of, you know, uh, the, the entire war on terror. But did, did you realize when you went there, the level of unit you were going to? Yeah, three, five, get some right. Uh, I I read as I was driving across the country from Virginia to Camp Pendleton, I was reading With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge. And I can't tell you how motivated and excited I was to be reading uh, about Kilo three five on Peleliu and Okinawa, and to be joining Kilo three five, and and that's where I ended up. And I'm reading, uh, and I'm you know, 
reading the final pages of with the old breed while I'm sitting in the Kilo 35 office and right outside the office, there's a picture of sledge and all those guys out, out on Peleliu. And, uh, you know, our call sign was sledgehammer, uh, based on EB sledge and, uh, yeah, what an incredible legacy to inherit and to, and to uphold. And so, yeah, I, I, I sledgehammer one actual first platoon commander, uh, and my, my, Ultimately, my platoon sergeant, after I fired two of them, would end up, he was a uh, Phantom Fury 3-5 vet. So he had been shot during uh, an 04 with, with 3-5 during Phantom Fury. My squad leader was a Fallujah vet. He went to the 07, 08 deployment with 3-5. So I had a lot of respect and appreciation for uh, our unit's history. And I think if, if w- one thing we can definitely give the, the Marine Corps credit to is, is, is we know our history and, and we know uh, our, our legacy and our stories and, and we do a good job of capturing that and everything we do. And so, yeah, I, I, I had a, I had an appreciation for the unit that I was reporting into. When you got there, uh, did you know how quickly you would be deploying? When I, when we got there, we were headed to a MU, uh, so the Marine Expeditionary Unit out there in Okinawa. It was a crappy time. They, the Marines that I inherited in 1st Platoon had just gotten back from a MU to Okinawa. And so, and they were the first iteration of 3-5 to miss the war in several years, and so all their seniors and uh, were all combat vets and they all joined to go to Iraq and, uh, and they were the, they were the crew who missed the war. And so they were a little bit jaded and cynical and, and then I come in and I'm full of piss and vinegar and I'm like, come on boys, we're, we're going to prepare for combat and, let's get after it. And they're like, no, we're going to Okinawa and we know this song and dance and people were pretty belligerent and morale was pretty low and it was tough. Um, our Christmas safety brief, the battalion commander, now general Morris said, Hey, we're going to Afghanistan. And just like that pivoted. And I said, Okay. You don't want to get in line. You don't want to act right. You stay on the bench. So I'm only bringing the varsity team. And so you either get your shit together or get out. And uh, from that moment forward, the, the remainder of my workup, easy day, no problems. Um, so, um, yeah. When do you get to Afghanistan? Late September 2010. Did you know what your mission was going to be? So one unit in fifth Marines had, had been to Afghanistan and that was one five. And they had a very coin centric deployment. They came back and it was, you know, kissing babies and KLEs and uh, that kind of stuff in, in hearts and minds. And so, that that was that was kind of what was on my mind, you know. I I read three cups of tea on my way over 
trying to learn the Pashtun Wally code. And, uh, but right before we left, the battle space commander for the AO that we were going to, the area of operations that we were going to, uh, which was we were going to rip out Kilo 37. Kilo 35 was going to rip out Kilo 37. And Kilo 37 at the time, it was Captain Cohen, now uh, Lieutenant Colonel Cohen. He's a battalion commander in 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines. He had been medevaced. And so his company was still deployed. And he comes to talk to us up there in San Mateo and Camp Pendleton. And the reports that he gave to us were, it was not, uh, singing district was not, the Northern Green Zone was not kissing babies. And you got this, Cohen is the most intense guy. There's a great op order that he delivers, if you look it up on YouTube, before his company pushes into singing. And he's like, the tactical task is to breathe fire. You're going to kill the enemy. It's like the most incredible savage op order you've ever heard. And so this guy is like a very naturally a meat eating savage. And so, and then, you know, he's just been mad at the act from getting blown up so many times. And he comes back and he starts talking to us and it's like, Oh shit. Uh, and so I think that was, that was kind of, the first real indications that we were about to go get after it. I think I'd still been so indoctrinated into coin, coin, coin that I still thought I was going to be winning hearts and minds and shaking hands with the mula. Um, but I think pretty quickly I came to understand that that was not <laughs> the case. And for those uh, civilians listening, coin is just short for counterinsurgency. Uh, as far as the uh, type of uh, operations that, that are being conducted. So uh, when you get there uh, and you're on ground, what's the operational tempo like from a day-to-day basis? I got there and within 24 hours, I led a 96-man patrol out to secure three battalion NAIs named areas of interest without having done any type of RIP left seat, right seat. It was just, Hey, was that overwhelming? Uh, we're going to send four or f- say again. Was that overwhelming? You know, I will tell you, IOC does a great job. I, I you know, and, and, and I had great squad leaders and we had a really aggressive workup. Uh, I was, yeah, I was stressed out playing this operation to take 96 dudes outside the wire it was my first time in combat and we move in ranger file so it's this long snake and i did not have half of my platoon outside of the entry control point of the patrol base and we were in a complex ambush ied initiated multiple firing positions hey welcome to combat (laughs) yes and uh you know i Again, half my platoon still inside the patrol base, and I'm trying to get up to the front where they've got the IED. And as I go to run through an open danger area, uh, any PKM medium machine gun opens fire down a PDF between these two cornfields. I dive behind a pile of giant opium. Uh, the poppy actually is, you know, the, the poppy's all stacked up. And so I'm concealed, but I'm not covered. 
And also the guy knows that this is where I just dove behind. And so he's just raking this pile and all this poppy is popping over my head. And I had the platoon commander from the previous unit with me. And I had uh, my machine gun squad leader who had a M203 on his rifle. And I said, Nykirk, I'm going to pop up, start suppressing. I need you just to throw some HE into that window. Got it? Good. I'm suppressing. And so I stood up. Bang, 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 bang. He stands up, shoots a couple of pretty mic, mic rounds. We get into the next field. Uh, and that platoon commander turns to me and goes, okay, Lieutenant Schumann, now that you got your car, how about you make a decision? I'm like, my decision was to not fucking die right there. <laughs> like, you know, do you, if you, do you think I, I was concerned about getting my combat action ribbon when I am five minutes into my first patrol getting mowed down? I'm pretty sure the car was going to come, you know, that, that was not motivated to get a ribbon. I can assure you that. Um, so yeah, it was, at, at some point, we, the compound that we wanted to set up because it was going to be a three-day operation, the compound that we wanted to set up in, that's where the whole village was staying, allegedly. And they're like, you can't stay here. And you can't. And so, like, okay, well, where do you want Where should we? They said, oh, go stay in this house over here. So we're, we go into this different compound. It's abandoned. We're walking around. And a grenade comes over the wall. And I look, and I see a grenade. And I'm like, you know, you do the drill, it's frag out, but then it's grenade, grenade, grenade when the grenade comes, enemy grenade. And I'm like, grenade, 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 and diving out of a, and I'm thinking, I got 96 people out here. How did this guy, somebody get so close? And I said, you know, I do not have good battle tracking right now. There's clearly gaps in my lines. Uh, I mean, it was, it was uh, uh, 10 minutes before that we were, we, we had, we had gone firm in this cornfield and uh, I'm trying to figure out where the hell we're going to go since they're saying that we can't go into this, stay in this compound. That was our primary compound that we were going to set up in uh, to do, run our patrol base operations out of. And I hear a couple shots and my squad leader comes back to me and goes, sir, uh, Lance Corporal Teague just shot someone. I'm like, okay. Did they have a gun? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, killing is authorized. Uh, so like that was that was wild. And then I hear some mortars landing. I'm like, are we being mortared? Are we firing mortars? We're firing mortars. I, I get a hold of the mortar section that I had out with me. I said, did you guys just fire some mortars? Like, yeah, we saw some Taliban egressing after the sniper shot at them. I'm like, I'm pretty sure we got to get mortars cleared by somebody before we just start <laughs> firing mortars. We've got rotary wing flying around. Like you can't just be shooting mortars. You got to talk to somebody. Uh, and I mean, yeah, so it was wild. Um, I mean, that, that's, was, that's uh, uh, you know, to, ultimately. To, to use a, a, a phrase, that's popping your cherry in a way that uh, is, uh, you know, unique to say the least. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, ab- absolutely. And in the other, our, our sister platoon, I was first and second platoon, we were, what we were doing is we were uh, trying to do this diversionary tactic to draw the Taliban down south towards us to allow recon to insert to the north recon was jumping in uh to sing and 
And so I went out one way of the patrol base and then second platoon went out the other direction and second platoon, same thing. They weren't even halfway outside uh, the patrol base and they had had two Marines shot and one of them was a corpsman. And I mean, uh, it was absolutely the wild west. Yeah. Um, was there any moment that you started to wonder, what did I get myself into? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we were taking casualties at such a rate that I just thought, that, you know, there's, there's no way we're not, we're not going to make it. Um, but I think the, the hardest moment for me was, uh, my best friend, Cam West. So I was first platoon commander. Cam was third platoon commander. And then Will Donnelly was second platoon commander. And we'd all been the TBS together infantry officers course together. We were all roommates out there in, in San Clemente, uh, outside of Camp Pendleton. And, uh, we had we had just had a big mass casualty. This is that's when that's when Abate got his Navy Cross, and then uh, so what, three or four dudes killed there. Um, we you know I think in the first week, two weeks we had fourteen killed in action and wow. already fifty sixty uh, wounded as a as a battalion. And uh, Cam was this guy who's this larger than life figure, kind of this John Wayne. And he, I was out on a patrol and I, I heard the medevac for third platoon over the radio. And I was in my own firefight at the time. And you can hear, like we call them the zap numbers or the kill card numbers. Right. And I could hear that I was pretty sure it was, it was camp. Uh, and they had one routine cash CKIA, one urgent surgical look, like uh it wasn't looking good and i knew the kia was definitely his radio operator lance corporal belk which platoon commander and the radio operator are always very close and uh in proximity to one another and so i gotta get through this fight that i i'm in and then i came back inside the wire and uh will donnelly met me at the gate and he was second platoon commander will would end up being killed a, a month later in the battle of Thanksgiving. And Will said, uh, Cam's been hit. They don't think he's going to make it. And it, at the, at that point, it was just uh, too much for me. I, I had to find an area to be alone because I didn't want my Marines to see me like that. So the only place I could find on the patrol base was the, the, detention facility where we kept the enemy detainees and we didn't have any at the moment. And so I went and I closed myself in there and I had a real moment. Uh, you know, I literally was weeping on the ground and I finally kind of pulled my shit together and I said, you got to get your shit together. And I, I went up to my little mud hut, uh, and I had stored away a Snickers bar at the bottom of my pack. And I said, you're going to need this Snickers bar for a, a rainy day. And this is going to be your little morale boost. I did not anticipate that within two weeks I would be tapping into that morale reserve. But uh, there I was. And I opened up my pack and I, and I start to 
dig through it and immediately it's apparent that a bunch of rats had been living in my bag and they chewed through everything and shit and pissed all over my bag and by the time i get to the bottom of my bag all that's left is a chewed up snickers bar wrapper and that was that's what broke the levy that was like that was too much i could not uh and so i i again i broke down i was physically ill like throwing up chills fever um but come the next morning i said you know i can't be combat ineffective like this again i have troops to lead and you know i I teach literature at the naval academy and one of the novels that i teach is gates of fire and and the spartans had this uh routine that they would do before or ritual that they would do before they went into combat where they broke their bracelets and and they would keep half and then they put half in a basket and so that if they were disfigured and you couldn't recognize them that that you could it's so similar to what our dog tags are but really what it was also about is that they left their humanity uh and then they had to go do warrior type stuff um out there and after that moment it was a breaking of my bracelets moment where i my expectations i now had the proper expectations to thrive in combat and I was able to compartmentalize anything that came up after that moment. Um, and so it was, yeah, I, there was, there was just some, I never felt like tactically or technically uh, unprepared, but there, that was a moment that I, I said, Hey, you've got to change. You've got to be able to compartmentalize this stuff. And then, you know, there's moments like when, one of my team leaders gets hit and loses his arm. And one of my Marines hands me his fingers and says, I, I found McLeod's fingers. And it's like, Oh, thank you. Uh, but he doesn't have an arm anymore. And so you put these fingers in your cargo pocket. And then there's, you know, uh, there's, I mean, there's, I, I can talk about several moments like that where no amount of training will can prepare you for some of these moments, some of these conversations that you'll have to have. But I I think when it comes to uh, decide, communicate, act, or uh, suppress, assess, move, kill, I think uh, the cycle of the infantryman type stuff, I think I was always, uh, and that's, that's, like I said, uh, it's an assumption at at infantry officer course, I said, oh, I think I'm in the right job. And then when the bullets and the band-aids and the bombs all start coming off and it's, and it's, you can, and you can keep your head and you have this equanimity and you could be that calm and you could have that self-composure. You say, Oh yes, I think this is probably the, the right, the right job for me. Tom, I want to get to those expectations in a moment, but I do want to back up when you were alone in that detention center and in that cell and you were on your knees and you were crying, what were, what were some of the emotions and thoughts going through your head in that moment? Was was it was it just pure, you know, uh, devastation at loss, or was it agony? Was it frustration, anger? I think, yeah, uh, it was probably uh, all those. I think, as you say them, it's like, yep, yep, yep. You know, uh, so uh, I was mourning potentially the loss of a brother. Uh, I knew his family very well, and 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 so i'm thinking very much of, of of his family at that in that moment i am frustrated that at the time we were getting our asses kicked 
um, uh, so angry, frustrated, um, you know, when, when no, November 9th, the day that I was, I was wounded, uh, the much more significant thing that happened that day was that Robert Kelly was killed that morning. And, uh, Robert Kelly, another platoon commander, his dad, General Kelly, you, you may know. And, that, that General uh, Kelly? say that again, that General Kelly, that was his son. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. So hit Rob and I had gone to infantry office course together. And uh, again, Rob was in Lima company. I was in Kilo company. Rob, uh, while, while we were both lieutenants, Rob was prior enlisted and, and had done uh, a deployment to Fallujah with one eight as an assault man. And so he was a mentor of mine. He was older and, and much wiser and, 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 and someone who I really looked up to and admired. And my last day in America, I spent hung over on the beach with general Kelly and Rob's family. Cause they had rented out a little cabin there on the beach in Camp Pendleton. And so Rob calls me and says, Hey, my dad wants you to come join us for this barbecue. And I'm still sleeping at noon that day. Uh, cause it was our last day before we deploy. And, uh, but I'm like, well, I'm not, you know, obviously I'm saying the general says, come out. I got to come out. And as soon as you get there, what does it do? Hands you a PBR. And says, hey, Tom. <laughs> like, the like, dog. Yes, sir. The right. Uh, and, and uh, so when my company commander came in on November 9th, you know, I think one of my first thoughts is that any minute there's going to be a Keiko officer standing outside his wife, uh, the general, and, and and Mrs. Kelly, his brother John, and uh, sister Kate, and 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 so I, I think you know you not only does your heart break because you're losing your friend, but then you you those families become your families too, and and uh, and you and, and you know them, and you know that they're about what's about that knock at the door what's going to happen when that knock comes at the door and so i think that that is very uh difficult as well to deal with with all this loss that you're dealing with as the beginning of this deployment happens um and prior to your injury are, are you ever fearful of your own life i mean you know we talk a lot about coming to grips with your own mortality because combat forces you to do that and how people handle that in different ways. Was that ever a thought? Um, if you watch all these other Marines and friends of yours get killed and get wounded and are you thinking I'm not making it out of here alive? Yeah, I was pretty convinced at some point that I thought I would, would not make it out alive. I also think I am very grateful for that moment. I think that moment that said, Hey, none of this shit is guaranteed. And if you get this opportunity of this incredible gift called life, what are you going to do with it? And up until that moment, I had been living like a boy, you know, I had, I was doing things that boys do. And I said you need to be a man if you get out of here and you need to and, and so it just crystallized my values uh 
uh, it helped me determine what was important. And so it was only through that very close proximity to death that I become that I have my own hero's journey where I, I said, I, I know now that when I come back, what, what needs to be done. If I, if I do have, if I am afforded this opportunity um, and I'm going to live in a way that honors these sacrifices and uh, I'm going to make their lives count and make it meaningful, make their sacrifice meaningful. And, and so I think that was a, a critical component, but was I, I, I think, I call it the luxury, you know, of leadership is that you don't have a whole lot of time to worry about yourself. And I, I think two things enabled me to be pretty free on the battlefield. My faith in that, well, I punched my card. I think I'm probably going somewhere better. It's no big deal. And then it's just, (laughs) I didn't have time to be, worried about myself i had 25 30 sons at any given moment out there and when you're a parent and your kid runs out in the street you don't think like oh well what the car might hit me right you just go out right you go and so it's just i would do all kinds of crazy shit and when i would be done you know i remember a couple times like lance cruel beaver be like sir you're fucking crazy (laughs) and i'm like beaver like we had to get over there <laughs> and I was the guy that needed to do it. And, and that's, it's, it's the idea of never asking your people to do something that you aren't willing to do yourself. It's the fighter leader concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, although it's cheesy, this, it, it does happen in reality where you're going to be in a bad situation and guess who everybody's going to little Turkey peek at. They're going to look at you and they're going to say, all right, this sucks. What are we going to do? And you got to be like, uh, you're going to follow me, boys. Are you ready? I'm six foot three with a big ass head and I'm going to be the first one up and I'm going to be running. And guess what? They're going to be that PKM is just going to follow me and you're going to run behind me. Everybody ready? Let's go. I'm on, I'm Oscar Mike. And so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, but I, I also think it's important to not be victims here, not because uh, while we took many punches, we overwhelmingly delivered many more. We absolutely stacked Taliban bodies. Uh, and when I was leaving the wire, you know, I, I read, you know, I teach literature and I read a lot about fear. I, I, I don't, I don't know if I had even, you know, I had 19 casualties in my platoon of 35. I still, every time I went outside the wire, thought we had the advantage. Right. And I thought if I'm the Taliban, I'm like, Oh fuck, here comes first tune. Like, fuck. Like they're like, and, and I had 35 badass dudes carrying machine guns, rockets, grenades, and you know in in a couple minutes we could have artillery mortars close air support so i think you know at at no point did i i you know again in that first week or two i think i was feeling a little bit victimized uh but i quickly found that once we got the lay of the land and got our got our feet under us that we were you know punching much heavier than than they they could ever dream of and 
and the best remedy for any loss that we took was was getting a win. And so on November 9th, when I was blown up, my my squad leader and my platoon sergeant were also blown up. And when I regained consciousness, I looked down and I see my squad leader, uh, Sergeant Humphrey, is is missing one leg uh, below the knee with just two bones sticking out. And then his other leg is uh, from the knee to the top of his boot. It's just the bone. There's no skin, muscle, anything. It's just the looks like a bare bone. Um, and and then I look to the left of him, and my platoon sergeant, Staff Sergeant Henley, is bleeding out the ears and can't get up. And uh, I'm like, this is a bad fucking day. And uh, I get down. I start treating. Humphrey and Humphrey saying, uh, uh, first he wants to confirm which every amputee I could tell you the first thing they want that I know exactly where you're going. They want to make sure their junk is all there. And then am I nuts? Okay. uh, Yep. And totally valid by the way, for those who don't know, that's a hundred percent because look, and this is purely man biology, right? Everything else after that is negotiable. I can, live without legs. I can live without arms. You take my junk away and we have to have a whole different set of conversations. And so <laughs> that's the, that's the uh, demarc- line of demarcation, if you will. Yes. A hundred percent. You know, I had, we had several amputees in my platoon and undoubtedly the first and foremost thought on their mind is, is, is that. Uh, and once you kind of clear that up, like you're saying, everything else is, we can, we can, everything else might, will buff out because um, they haven't come up with a prosthetic and then you know yet. my my squad le- <laughs> yes uh not that i'm aware maybe they have yeah um, i was gonna say but i'm not 100 aware that, that it exists nor would i try it but the different discussion again so regardless yep uh definitely a rabbit hole uh <laughs> and so he keeps saying sir I can't believe I stepped off the trail. I stepped off the trail. We, our rear of our patrol had come under heavy fire and we were out there QRFing another patrol that had a casualty as well. Sergeant Michaels had been blown up and uh, would end up losing his leg. And when we all came together, he steps off the trail and, and he keeps apologizing. I'm like, Humphrey, um, you could, you could probably don't worry about it, but, uh, you know, let's just, uh, no one's, and, and, and here's this, here's this guy that is apologizing, missing his leg, other leg, and a guy who would almost die several times in flight and then almost die again in Lundstuhl. And, and what's so remarkable about these Marines that I, that I led and I served and fought alongside is as we're carrying Humphrey off the battlefield, you know, he keeps saying this, I know, so I know, uh, I know I'm heavy and it, why don't you guys just put me down and, and take a break. A guy that they would have to resuscitate in the, on the flight moments before he dies. What are his thoughts with us? His, his thoughts are with his Marines saying, I know I'm, I'm no, I'm, and that's man, what a privilege it is to serve men like that and 
And so I get back and they say, oh, get on the helicopter with these guys. And I said, I can't fucking get on the helicopter with these guys. My platoon sergeant, and my squad leader, both. I mean, you talk about testaments of character. 48 hours later, my platoon sergeant comes waddling off of a, off of a helicopter. And I'm like, what are you doing? Your ears were bleeding out two days ago. And he's like, yeah, I snuck on the first flight coming back here. And they want to be, as he says, he says, put me on the patrol manifest, sir. I'm going out. We're going out in a three-day operation. I'm like, Staff Sergeant, you can't walk in a straight line right now. And we we all walk in straight lines because of the high D threat. You can't come out on patrol. You rest assured, Staff Sergeant was on the first patrol outside the wire. Staff Sergeant, who was in Fallujah with 3-5, like I said, had been shot in Fallujah in 04 when he was a, a squad leader he's going back into the 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 patrol base gets shot a couple hundred meters outside of the patrol base turns around and says hey y'all better stop throwing rocks back there goes into the goes into the base and someone comes up and says sergeant um the back of your trousers all red you've been shot in the ass <laughs> again they try to medevac him out of country refuses medevac back with his platoon a week later after getting shot in the ass this guy two purple hearts both com both deployments both of the most lethal deadly deployments that the marine corps fought in in iraq and afghanistan this guy had a one-way ticket out what does he do comes back as soon as he can to get back and lead in a fight with his marines and so uh i i think th- so the next day i led an operation Humphrey's revenge. And I said, we're going right to the hornet's nest and we're going to stir it up and we are going to fuck these guys up. And so I think that was what was really important for me is that when you take that loss, when you take a punch, you got to show the men that, Hey, uh, the enemy isn't invincible and that, uh, we're, we're down, but we're not out. And the units that I found struggled, were the units that would take that punch and then kind of go a little bit, feel sorry for themselves or go a little bit internal. And it's hard to get that momentum back. But if you say, Hey, I got an L, but tomorrow I'm getting a W. And, and I I found that to kind of be the best remedy through those kind of situations. Yeah. Going back to those expectations you talked about before, uh, is that some of it, not only understanding loss and how to deal with it and how to cope with it internally on your own, how to sort of flip that switch, but also, you know, that, that uh, ability to counterpunch. I mean, did, were you aware that that was part of the coping mechanism for you guys? Are those the expectations you were referring to? The expectation is a, is, is like, you're a, you're a, you know, so we'll stick with the, with the fighting meta metaphor and the boxer metaphor is like that you're in the, you're in the ring and that, that you have an expectation to get hit and, if you have an expectation, if you understand that you're in a fight, you're going to get your hands up. And when you have your hands up and that punch comes, it's not to say that Mike Tyson throws a punch at you and you got your hands up. It's like, Oh, no, no problem. No, it's probably a fucking problem. (laughs) Uh, But you know, it's, it's a difference between being out a 10 count 
or getting knocked down and being able to get back up on your feet and, and, and fight. And so for me, it was this idea that like having the situational awareness that, Oh, there's an ambush is coming. I'm going to make myself more resilient uh, and sustain less trauma from that ambush because I am now have the proper mindset and the proper expectation that I am in a hostile world. There's a reason my gun is conditioned one at the time. There's a reason that I've put my flak jacket and Kevlar on when I went outside this patrol base. It's because there's someone who is actively attempting to hunt and kill me. It's fine because I'm also actively trying to hunt and kill them. And I think I've got the better team of hunter killers. And so it's, it's no problem. And so uh, I think it's, it's this idea that the stove is called a premeditatio malorum or, or premeditation of evil. It's the idea that, that, that evil exists, it's coming your way. And when you can get your, once you accept that, um, then it's, you, you start, you stop becoming a victim. You stop merely surviving and you can start to thrive, I think, in, in those kind of scenarios. You kind of glossed over a little bit of the fact that you were blown up as well. Uh, and you did, you were, you know, awarded a Purple Heart. W- what happened to you specifically? Yeah, I don't remember a lot of it. Uh, I, I The last thing I kind of remember is... is well, actually, I didn't remember any of it until it was kind of retold to me. And then those files got put back into the bank. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I had, you know, just some superficial stuff, but I had been I was knocked out unconscious for I, yeah, I couldn't tell you a couple minutes, I think something like that. Um, and when I got back inside the wire, you know, I'm bleeding, had this little not feeling great and my company commander says uh he goes what happened and i'm like um i don't fucking know (laughs) like (laughs) like i could like uh like i went to that space and there was space was blank um and uh you know, the IDC is like, you need to get on that helicopter that's leaving. I'm like, well, no fucking way. Um, and said, okay, well, you need to take two weeks off. I said, okay, Roger that doc. And then, yeah, next day we went out and we, we got after it. And, you know, I, I, that was November 9th, 2000. Like I said, started off with Rob Kelly. Then, you know, it was just a bad, bad day, um, all around. And, what is this 2021? I just, I just made my first appointment. Well, I just finished my first appointment a couple of weeks ago at the uh, NICO Intrepid Center, which is this TBI clinic in uh, Walt at Walter Reed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've got a couple issues or whatever. And I just, but you're, you know, always too busy. I went, I went right back to Afghanistan as a, with recon and as a JTAC and, then I go to the school of infantry and I'm the director there. And then I go, I got a company and then it's like, you know, there's, then I got met grad school and just had a new kid. And so you just, there's no, and, and I just said, look, you're in your last year teaching here. And if you don't get this shit checked out now, you're never going to get it. And you got the best, you know, clinic in the country. 
30 minutes away from me in Annapolis here. And uh, so I finally made an appointment and, and it's, and it was, yeah, I think uh, I encourage, you know, everybody to, to get their stuff checked out. It's the, I had, you know, a dozen referrals from that. Um, and one of them was to behavioral health and, um, I'm just starting that process and finally going to see the wizard. And, uh, I think it's been uncomfortable, but I think the verdict is still out, but I, but I, I can tell you that, um, it's helped me be much more introspective to think about like, how am I, how am I, my, your, your thoughts, feelings, and actions, right? Like, why am I feeling this way? Why am I acting this way? What am I thinking when I start to kind of, and, and so I lack that introspection, like until, you know, my, the, the wizard starts to, to say like, well, wh- what are you thinking when you're feeling like that? And I'm like, Oh, actually like, or like, and like or you're thinking this thing, like, how do you start to act when, and I'm like, so like, I basically, you know, for 10 years have kind of, just glossed over some shit that probably needs to be addressed. And so I think, uh, it's, it's overall, it's, it's been, it's been a very productive, uh, experience to kind of go get this, this thing checked out finally. Through the prism now of being married and being a, a parent, um, and watching your kids grow up, would, do you wish you had made a choice like that sooner to go get checked out? Because, I mean, when it's just – and you talked before about, you know, the things in combat that you chose to do and people thought you were crazy. And I, I always kind of harken back to that scene in uh, in Saving Private Ryan where, you know, where Tom Hanks stands up to get shot at and uh, Tom Sizemore, his, his, his E7, says to him after the fact in the movie, says, if your mother saw you do that, she'd be very upset, right? Like, you know, you make those kind of decisions now that I think back, would I do those same things again, knowing what else I have with a family and children – you know, uh, yeah, I, I probably would be a little bit more judicious in my decisions because there's more on the line when when there's more in the rear for you. There's more on the line. Right. Um, and, and it's always one of those things that I, I think when, when you view it through that prism, um, I just wonder if you feel like uh, you, you could have made different choices. I want to say better choices, but different choices as far as getting checked out and everything else. Sure. I think I mean, undoubtedly, there's a reason that we have people enlist at 18 to 22 that frontal cortex isn't fully developed you are much more willing to take a lot of risks and uh and so and then yeah and you you have less collateral damage associated with you if you and so i i yeah i I am i don't know uh obviously i haven't been in combat since i've had my two kids and i don't i i assume it it works into the calculation uh, how could it not? Um, and I, there's plenty of fathers who have had to make those kind of decisions on the battlefield. So we, rather than speculate, you know, it'd be probably better just to, to talk to them. Um, but yeah, I, you know, when you're talking about, Oh, my, my, my mom, I, I, I tried to do a failed amphibious assault across Hellman river. And as I was drowning, it was very, it was very slow. Uh, you know, the Marine Corps does a very good job of indoctrinating you about gear accountability and gear retention. And I was about in 12 feet 
of water and push down to the bottom. And, and basically I knew I either need to pull the quick release strap on my gear or I'm going to drown. And, uh, but then I would, then officer cannon school comes back in your mind and it says, well, if I don't, if I, well, then my gear won't be accounted for. <laughs> and uh so then you start to debate quite legitimately debating is it better to be dead with all my gear accounted for or alive and potentially not have my gear accounted for and as i started to kind of black out in this little slow scene that was playing out um i thought my mother is not going to be happy <laughs> and that was the only time that one that in that one moment was the only time i ever thought about and you uh but i i think yes i should have been checked out sooner there's always an excuse and i think it's a little bit uh a fear you know and so i think you know i talk all this brave shit that i could do around the battlefield but then not have the courage to go deal with some hard shit uh on the home front and so i think it was a little bit maybe of cowardice a little bit of fear that i ignored that there were some clear indications and warnings some i and w that said you should go get checked out and that's no 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 i'm too busy and so too busy is a nice excuse right uh but i think it's probably more uh didn't i lacked the moral courage and which you know manifested in not healthy ways. And so I think uh, being more proactive would have been a hundred percent better because it's, it was, it's all delaying tactic. You know, it's all been a delaying tactic. It's like that shit's not going anywhere and you got to unpack it at some point. You put it in all those boxes and you keep, and you put it in that warehouse and then all of a sudden you get that box unexpected return to sender open up knock knock motherfucker mailman's here got a package for you it's all the shit you haven't dealt with and it's like right it's like and and you don't you can't say well oh now it's not a good time could you come back tomorrow it's like nope it's here it's on the porch and it's opening well i I mean it's it's such a tough thing to deal with because compartmentalizing is key to combat survival like you can't get through it without it you can't bring your family with you to combat. You can't bring any other issues you have. You need the the clearest of clear heads to survive on a routine basis, especially when your life is continually being threatened. And so you put everything in a box and you leave it there and you're okay with it because you understand that you don't need it to survive in combat. There are very few things you actually need like mentally to survive in combat, right? You just need to know that there's a person on the left and your right who's got your back and isn't going to let you die. And after that, you know, it's training and, and, Chew gum and kick ass. I mean, it, it's very simplistic. But as you said, so often we put everything in these compartments and then we get back, we forget to unpack it or we don't want to unpack it or or we, we just pile more shit in there by our next deployment or the next mission or the next assignment, whatever it is. And, and as you said, eventually either it gets so overflowing with crap that it just spills out or something generates something to open that compartment and it, it, you can't run from it. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, we see this all too often that uh, people's desire to escape what comes out of the compartment results in drinking, drug use, 
crime, whatever it is, suicide and everything else. And here we are. You know, it was crazy because I saw a statistic uh, the other day that there there have been uh, 7,000 soldiers, you know, military members killed since 9-11 in the war on terror. There have been 30,000 suicides in that in that span of military members. So it's nearly a, a four to four times the amount of people who have died by suicide since military members since post 9-11 than have actually been killed in combat, which is unfathomable at this point. It's unfathomable that that that, that epidemic is going on and we haven't figured out a way to, to even re- remotely reduce it. Yeah, uh, that, that was published by Brown University, yeah. uh, a student at Boston University worked on it, uh, th- about a 37 page report. I, I just finished reading it as well. And, you know, and when I'm listening to the intro of your podcast, it says, you know, uh, combat and survival. And I said, you know, the, the survival that's been the most challenging for GWAT wasn't on the battlefield. It's been the home front. It's been how to survive the home front. And uh, I had one of my sergeants kill himself two weeks ago. Uh, I had one of my corporals, Justin McLeod, kill himself last April, April 2020. And uh, that you know, we talk about expectations and when, when I'm in combat, I know that I'm going to have to write some letters. And when I just put my daughter to bed and I get that phone call that, and then I've got to, and, and, and McLeod was really tough for me. It wasn't the first Marine that I'd lost a suicide, but McLeod was tough for me in that he had come up on his end of service and right before we deployed. And he said, you know, sir, I was going to extend, but I just had this kid and I said, well, McLeod, you know, we'd be really could use you and, and you're a great shot and you're a great land nav and do what's best for your family. Uh, and McLeod had had McLeod enlisted, even though he had all these baseball scholarships because he wanted to go to Iraq. And so he got to go to Iraq and then he had this kid and he said, you know, no, I think I got what I needed. I'm going to get out. And I said, man, we're, we're going to be in a bind without you. And he, and, and he comes back a week later and says, you know, so you're my family too. And I can't leave you guys. You're right. And two months later, like I told you about that Marine that I, somebody handed me, one of my Marines handed me his fingers. Well, that's McLeod. And so then I go up to McLeod and he's flatlining. And, uh, and I got to talk to this guy who was so excited to, to coach his son Desmond's little league baseball team and play catch. And this guy who's a, who was a star athlete and now he's missing two of his legs and most of his arm. And, and, and as he's flatlining in front of me, I'm saying, Hey, McLeod, you got to stay with us. You got to stay for Desmond. And, uh, and everything inside you is, you feel like you're getting torn apart inside. You want to do, you just want to cry. And, but you know, you, you know that everybody feels that way. And if you do it, you know, and and you, it's not an option for the leader in that moment. And so I'm trying to talk to this guy about his newborn son and then watching him die. And then I'm able to convey that, that, that message. And I see him, it click and he, and he starts to fight and he stays with us and he stayed with us for 10 years. Um, but he had a surgery after surgery and he's always on the meds. And, 
uh, he eventually loses that battle. And, and, and within two more months, I had two more Marines kill themselves. So I had three Marines in, 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 a, in a three month period in 2020 kill themselves. And I said, that's it. I gotta, I gotta get involved. And, and, and so I, I studied, uh, trauma and moral injuries and, and from an academic perspective, while I was at, in the graduate program at Georgetown. So I was very familiar with this Jonathan Shea who wrote this work Achilles in Vietnam. And if, if you've ever read Sebastian Younger's tribe, you, you know, you know, this idea of, 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 of tribe and purpose and, and why it's so important. And, and, and so I start to read VA suicide report after VA suicide report and, uh, the leading proximal cause of veteran suicide uh, was, was always feelings of disconnectedness and isolation. And I said, okay. Uh, and then there was one other statistic that, that said that we, that, that they found no uh, clear correlation between suicide and combat. And that actually more non-combat veterans had killed themselves than combat veterans. And so I started to say, well, what is out there that is putting veterans period service members period in community and getting them connected and, and, and helping them find that tribe and purpose. And what I found is like, if you're SF, if you're wounded a lot. Uh, and what I found is about 98% of the resources were allocated to about 2% of the population, but that didn't support what the data was saying that, that everybody is struggling with this and actually uh, the people who are struggling with more are the non-combat veterans. And, and to me, it makes sense that if you're a, a Navy sailor enlisted on a submarine and, 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 and you are in charge for a strategic asset, right? You work in the engineer room of a, of a strategic asset that, that, and, you, and you're in close quarters with a crew for months at a time. And then you get out and people, and, and you say, Oh, I was a e, E4 in the Navy. Do you know, like not really many people give a shit about that. And there's no foundation out there for you. And I, I talked to a guy at, at Glock today and uh, about supporting patrol base Abate and uh, he had met Sergeant Abate's parents and, and, and wanted to call me to talk about it to see how he could, he could help. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, I, uh, usually we, you know, the stuff we do uh, for raffles are for, I won't say their names, but it's like this foundation, this foundation, this foundation. This, and I said, oh, like, yes. So does everybody else does the things for those foundations. And I'm glad that we allocated the, that that's where our primary focus was. That we asked the people who do the most, the people who made the most sacrifice are special forces veterans and our wounded veterans. I think they should be the main effort. But there, there could be a supporting effort one, you know, there could be, there can be, we, there, there's, there, we, and, 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 and why uh, after 20 years have we not started to bring on more organizations that to say, Hey, you served and you had this incommunicable experience where everybody to your left and your right, you said, I'll die for you. And then you get out and guess what? You will not find that in society. And so I understand that, veterans in fact you'll find the exact um, opposite in society it's not all doubt for you it's i'll cut your legs out from underneath you at the first chance to better myself or advance myself like that's you know it's not only that it doesn't exist the polar opposite exists sure and so i wanted to say hey no 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 barrier to entry 
service alone gets you admittance. Everybody else wants you to put you in a box and say, were you, tell us how special you were. Tell us how disabled you were. Tell us how PTS you are. And I just want to say, Hey, you might have those things and that's okay. We're happy to have you on the team. Right. But I don't need to put you in a box. I just want to say, I, I know that we all need that tribe. We all need that connection. We all need that community. And I just want to say, if you raise your right hand, come on in admin clerk in the air force, you're in, you know, supply soldier, you're in, you know, uh, Marine logistics, you're in, you know, Navy sailor, like uh, uh surface warfare, you're in, you know, and, and, and people keep saying, when we started, people kept saying, well, oh, I was just a, but, but I was just a, right. And they're, and we're programmed to condition to feel like, unless you were uh, killing bin Laden, your service doesn't matter. Right. And so people say, well, I was just a, I said, no, fuck that. Like you served it matters. You're in, Oh, but somebody needs it more than me. Look, dude, lady, there are plenty of good resources out there for people who need in treatment inpatient type stuff. I'm not, maybe somebody does need it more than you. We're saying that, Hey, wherever you're at in the spectrum, we all need community. We all need that purpose. And so we went out, we got 340 acres out in Montana, a ranch, because I think good shit happens outside. And then I said, let's make it free of charge. Let's make it, and let's make it, let's continue to make it inclusive in that we'll meet you where you're at. You don't have to, this is not the patrol base about the, uh, uh, bike mountain bike club, right? It's a patrol base, whatever. You, and so we've got fight clubs, bike clubs, strength clubs, book clubs, yoga clubs, art clubs, surf clubs, you name it. You know, we'll, we'll be into what you're into. If two veterans are into it, we'll bring you out to Montana. We'll free of cost. And you come out and you do the thing that you're in. So again, get, get rid of every kind of excuse that you could have. It's free. You rate it. We're doing what you're into, right? And you're going to come out here. You're going to do some work. You're going to rest, refit. And we're going to get you prepared to, because the mission, uh, this is really a mission prep thing that we do out in Montana. Because after we spend four nights out there in Montana, <clears throat> around the fire, getting outside, doing the stuff that you love. The expectation is that you then go back and join your local club. And so we've got over 20 local clubs right now. And those patrol base of Bate local clubs, again, no dues, no secret handshakes, no smoky back alley rooms, right? It's like, let's do, let's get back to service. And so we partner with local service communities, uh, local, local service organizations that are already trusted in the community. And so uh, like our Southern California chapter goes out with Recycle for Veterans and goes and cleans up the beaches. Because veterans are people of service and you want to feel like you're serving and sacrificing, right? And so we say, we're going to provide you a venue and a space to continue to serve and sacrifice. And, and, then, and then there's obviously a social aspect to that and getting connected locally is sustainable. It's, it's, it's uh, enduring and it, and it gives you the opportunity to feel like, and, and, and to me, as an English guy, I study narratives, right? And this, this narrative that's formed around veterans that were broken, <clears throat> damaged, disabled, entitled. And I said, no, these are not the veterans that I know. Uh, and so not only are we not broken, damaged, disabled, where are the people who are still serving in and out of uniform and we're in your communities and we're addressing the greatest needs within our communities and, and we're men and women of service, men and women in character. And so let's rewrite that narrative. Let's challenge that narrative that, that, uh, that's kind of crystallized about veterans and, and, uh, and we can demonstrate that through our example out there in our, in our local chapters. And, um, the, the, I, I would say the last aspect there is, is that we have a huge active duty push 
because we want to get left a bang. We want to be preemptive on this. And everything else is very react. And so at some point, whether it's four years or 40 years, somebody hands you this piece of paper, they say, hey, you're not this thing that you were. And it's like, well, I'm actually still in the uniform. And you're saying, it's like, nope, you're not. You're not that thing anymore. And so what we want to do is, is what the, also what the VA suicide reports will tell you is like the most vulnerable period is that first year. And we want to mitigate that risk that you, that, that identity crisis that you feel in that first year by having a natural transition that you've already uh, had that battle buddy that you, you know, uh, a Marine in a buddy pair, a soldier and a buddy pair is strong, right? Uh, a, a Marine or soldier alone is vulnerable, right? And so what we want to do is get you that buddy pair, get you in that fire team before you end your service. And so, uh, you know, it's to get a lot more proactive, a lot more preemptive in our, in our, in our approach here. And so uh, whether you're a PFC or the general and you're on active duty, we want you on, on, on the team. And uh, we're very excited that we've got three retreats coming up in July um, book club, fight club and strength club are all going to be out there in Montana doing that. Uh, we just sent uh, last weekend, we sent a, a crew up Mount Rainier, our outdoors club just went out and climbed Mount Rainier in April. We had our hunting club come out and shoot some turkeys. And so uh, yep, if you raise your right hand, you're in uh, you're on the team period. That's awesome. So. I, I, you lost so many guys out there uh, sustained so many casualties. What was it about Matthew Abate that wanted to make you name this after him? Yeah. I mean, he's the most legendary guy I, I, I've ever met. He was the Achilles of uh, our generation of Iraq and Afghanistan. Men wanted to be him. Women wanted to be with him. Uh, he um, not, oh, I mean, his Navy cross doesn't even do him, you know, justice. There, there was a day that he said, you know, sir, they keep ambushing you from your flank and they're, they're shooting at you from two tree lines away. And if I got in that intervening tree line, uh, I could do a lot of work. And I'm like, okay. He's like, but I need to go alone. And I'm like, about that. You want to be 500 meters away in between us and the enemy by yourself. I don't know. It sounds pretty <laughs> sketchy. He's like, sir, just trust me. I got it. And I'm like, all right, dude. He killed 12 guys that day. He just all he had this suppressed, uh, uh, Mark one eleven, I think. And it was the SAS and you could just hear. And, you know, I was a pretty aggressive platoon commander. And so I would say, Hey, let's go do this. And people will look at me like, how about we don't fucking do that. Right. And then I'm like, all right, who's going to come with? And it'd be like crickets, crickets. And the bate be like, I'm in, sir. And as soon as the bate is in, you know, the rest of the hands start to come up like, okay, well, if the bate isn't here, like we'll, we'll, we'll probably be all right. And, uh, and so even though he was this larger than life figure, uh, he was so humble and uh, and he treated everybody with dignity and respect, but, you know, from the lowest guy to the top guy. And, and uh, you know, his, he, he's got a son as well. And, and I just said, Hey, we're, we're building, uh, you know, there's 20 million veterans and then in, 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 in they're, and they're all eligible reserves, national guard, active duty. They're all, and they're all eligible to be part of 
our, our organization. And so we're going to, we're building something here pretty special. And then it's going to, uh, and I said, who we're going to build this epic thing and, and who's the most epic legendary guy I know. And, and, and I, I've always felt compelled to continue to, to honor uh, all the gold star legacies. Like you point out, uh, you know, I got to tell a couple of stories today, Will Donnelly, um, uh, Robert Kelly, and I could tell many more. Um, but uh, Matt Abate is, uh, he's just the coolest fucking dude. And, uh, and, and the greatest warrior I've ever, I've, I fought along, I fought alongside a lot of badass dudes. Uh, Abate was the lion. He was uh, head and shoulders above us all. And, and uh, I, I think, yeah, what, what we're building is a pretty special place. And I want to name it after a pretty special guy. That's awesome. Um, you know, it, it's, it speaks to, um, an interesting concept that, uh, that, you know, it, you're including everybody, right? And one of the things you said before that kind of resonated with me, at least, you know, from, from the hazard ground standpoint is that, uh, we hear that a lot from people who we ask to come on the show. Well, I, I'm not, I don't have that interesting of a story. Like I don't, you know, I didn't do anything. I'm not, I'm, I'm not the American sniper. I'm not lone survivor. Well, that, but that doesn't minimize anything of what you've done. And it doesn't minimize any uh, importance to the story that you have. Uh, and I think one of the great things, um, and again, you know, I, I don't, I'd hate to, you know, pat my podcast on the back here, but you know, it's everybody's story connects to somebody else. And, and that's the point of the community, right? It, it, you don't know who around you is going to be able to relate to what you went through or your story or your feelings or your emotions. And uh, I, I think that it's so important that, you know, there is a certain amount of uh, inclusivity in, in what you're doing with, with Patrol Base Abate that's that's super important because every perspective that's brought to the table is just more information, right? It's more knowledge. It's more uh, perspective that, that people might not be able to see on their own. I think that's really unique about what, what you've done and, and, and super important. Yeah, it- it, it doesn't have to be a competition. You know, we ask everybody to check their egos at the door. You know, it's, it's Instagram has kind of created this reality where everybody follows all these soft pages. And they think, you know, if I didn't have dual nods and jump off a little bird helicopter, then I must not be shit. And it's like, look, uh, you know, that is 1% of people. Those are bad motherfuckers. Like, and they rate that our, our appreciation that they're keeping people up at night and uh, that someone in dark corner of the world doing God's work. Right. So of course we should thank God that such men live and continue to hold such high standards. Uh, but like, again, I think like you're saying that, that, that each of the, each story matters and, and uh, it doesn't need to be, well, they did this. And so that it doesn't, it doesn't minimize or marginalize the the fact that you just, you made, you made, uh, you decided to serve and, and all services should be selfless and, and there's sacrifice involved in all service. And I think uh, it's, it's, we're, we're building a large tent and we're saying, Hey, you got to see at the table and uh, we, we want you in. So. Where are you uh, with all of your compartments and unpacking them all? I, I, you know, I like the boxes idea. I also kind of say like, it's a, there's a sea bag and you kind of brought that up that, that you kind of keep packing more and more into the sea bag. And, and to me, it's like the sea bag haunts me. It's always, uh, follows me everywhere I go. There's a great scene and, uh, I think it's Madhorn or is it fields of fire? I think it's fields of fire where the, the staff sergeant comes back and he, uh, 
he's hitchhiking out of Camp Pendleton back to uh, see his wife. And this whole hitchhiking scene, he's carrying this sandbag, and the sandbag is obviously this this metaphorical kind of thing that he's carrying. And uh, I just listened to Marlantis did did the speech this Memorial Day down at the wall, and, and he sent me his his talk down there, and, and he talks about your ghosts are behind you, but you got to put them out in front of you, and you make them your ancestors, and uh, and to get them out in front of you means you need to turn and address them and call them by name and um it's a process man and i i think writing has really helped uh, make meaning of much of my experiences and so the uh, whether teaching english at the naval academy and studying at georgetown i think writing has been super helpful for me to make sense of a lot of stuff that i'm working through and um and just finally having the courage to to open the box and look in and know it's going to be painful. No, it's going to be hurt, but it's, it's also necessary. And so I think there's, it's, it's a, I don't know. Um, it might be a lifelong project here. Uh, maybe I'm in the early stage, but I'm in, I'm at least, um, I've at least started. Yeah. Um, are any, you know, existentially, are any of us ever completely, you know, done unpacking our compartments? No, I think there's an argument that as life continues to go on and more things happen and more trauma gets entered into, you deal with things as they come to a certain extent, which prevents you from digging to the bottom of your compartments as we stay with that analogy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it is a lifelong process. And I think a lot of people who um, have been suffering with post-traumatic stress um, and, and, they know that it's never complete, right? You're never at a finish line with the whole thing. It's it, there's, it, it's not the flu. Hey, I'm cured. I can go back to normal. It's something that you're going to live with and manage on a routine basis. So, um, you know, my, my my concern for anybody I talk to with this whole thing is is, you know, making sure that there is there is an understanding that in our desire to help other people that we remember to help ourselves. You know, like you've talked repeatedly about how much, you know, patrol base abate means and, and what it is. And, and you know, you're, you're downloading all this information now to students at the Naval Academy and you're continuing to, uh, you know, gain knowledge through reading and writing and everything else. But what are you doing to make sure that, you know, uh, under the surface that you're addressing things that are going on in your world? And it, it's sometimes it never hurts to have somebody just ask that question um, because it's as simple as that question can begin the, the process of opening up a compartment that you hadn't touched before. Yeah, no, you're spot on. Um, what do your students know about your military career? Have they ever asked you? Have they ever questioned about your experiences? The mids are conditioned to hear officers talk about themselves because I think officers <laughs> like to talk about themselves. Not all and of us. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, officers feel like just because they can that often that they should. And I would say that that's not the case. And, 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 you know, so many of the officers I have encountered on the yard, uh, want to start talking about, well, in 1993, uh, and I'm like, man, what's in it for today for these mids? What, what do you, what value you bring? And I got it. You, and, and I, what I think I've brought in. And so, you know, the mids always want to hear, the the background stories but what i try to when i talk to the mids i think i 
um, I mean, I teach literature, right? And so I just find where those those combat experiences intersect with the text and what what lessons that we can draw from them, from my experience and from what kind of text is teaching us. Uh, and then uh, I just try to really drive home that, you know, maybe you came to the Naval Academy to play lacrosse and maybe you came to the Naval Academy because you wanted a good engineering degree. Just maybe no one told you, but now I'm reading you the fine print. You're here to fight, win, kill, and if necessary, die. Uh, that that you are part of this violent persuasion because war is an extension of politics. And so someone said, hey, we couldn't talk it out. So we need you to go kill the other person and convince them to, that, to, and, right? And so, and no one is, is going to have a really passive experience about that. No one's going to say, oh, yeah, sure. Like, no, that person's going to try to kill you too. And that means you, the surface warfare officer. That means you, the submarine officer. That means you, the naval aviator. Guess what? You are all participants in this violence. Uh, and just because we've been lulled over the last, you know, the GWAT that not a whole lot of ships or submarines just understand, go back to World War II and understand that that's what World War III is going to look like. There's going to be a lot of ships at the bottom of the ocean. There's going to be a lot of planes getting shot out of the sky. And so we are all here as, as active participants in this violence. And, and and more importantly, you're going to be leading men and women, serving men and women. Uh, and you have this sacred oath. You have this sacred duty to do everything you can to prepare that man or woman for that moment. And uh, you have an obligation to start preparing yourself now. You know, that's why you're here. Start preparing yourself. Don't wait four years and say, oh, maybe now I'm ensign so-and-so. Maybe it's like that Marine and that sailor, they're, they're, they're waiting. They're waiting for you to lead them. And you don't know where, you know, none of us can predict where we'll be in six months, a year. You know, when I got, when I checked into my unit, I was going on 31st Mew, right. Went to the most kinetic deployment that the Marines fought in, in Afghanistan. So, uh, and so I think that's the kind of stuff that I try to bring is, is the gravity of our responsibility, um, and say we must get to work earnestly because we have this incredible responsibility, this incredible privilege to lead these men and women. Um, so I think that's what I try to do with my experience. You teach English. Obviously, you're a reader. There's a lot of books out there. Do you have a book that you have read that you would recommend, if there was one or two of them, that most closely rates to the combat experience? Is there one that you can think of that you would recommend to people to read? Yeah, Matterhorn. I think uh, I think I'm going to recommend Matterhorn. I think that no one is going to read Matterhorn and be like, "Damn, that major gave me a shit recommendation." Right? <laughs> like, I'm confident that you go read Matterhorn at the end of it, you're going to say, "Oh, well, that, yeah, that that checks out." So, uh, I, you know, if 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 you want to know what it feels like uh, to be in the bush, if you want to know what it, feels like to be in a firefight if you want it carmelantis matterhorn is going to take you there and uh you know it's that's the great thing about literature is it is it is it it's like a lighthouse and it can shine light in dimly lit areas that you haven't been before and it says hey now this is not a full out you know this is not the exact experience but this is kind of hey this is what this looks like and so none of us have to be flat-footed when we encounter something we can always get a, a free rep uh, it's all there. It's all in a book. You just got to open it up and and take a look. Is there anything uh, about your combat experience um, that 
maybe keeps you up at night or you wish you had done differently? Yeah, I could armchair quarterback myself all day. Um, How often do you do that? I try to avoid it at all costs uh, because I every Marine of mine that was killed, I see things that I could have done differently. I, I wrote, you know, again, I said I do all this stuff through writing. I wrote a post about the sea bag and I, I wrote a post about it and uh, about how some days it feels heavier and some days I can't, no matter where I go, that sea bag is in the same room with me. And uh, I was really not, I didn't write it for this purpose, right? I didn't, I don't write any of my shit for pity or sympathy. I just write it because I got it right. And, um, and then I put it up because maybe someone else, might feel the same way or benefit from it. But, um, you know, a couple of my Marines reached out and said, you know, sort of like, you know, no one judges you for those decisions you made. And, you know, so, um, but, uh, I, I, what would I do differently? I, I didn't know, there, there's a book called Attacks by Rommel. So Rommel, the German Rommel, right? Um, and in my first couple of firefights, I was a little bit hesitant to exploit my successes uh, because the unit we ripped out kind of told us, hey, you can't do this and you can't do that. And if you go there, you'll die. And if you do this, you'll die. Don't do this. And I'm like, well, shit, like, what can you do? And like, and, and they kind of had built the enemy up to be this 10 foot tall guy. And so, um, there are a couple, I think really missed opportunities that had I pressed the attack because the enemy had, was not used to dealing with a unit that I think was as, 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 as aggressive as we were. And I think that there were, there were openings, and I said, Oh, we, we were pretty successful today. Uh, let's just like, let's just consolidate here. And, 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 and I think that we had some opportunities to really fucking crush them. Uh, but I, I was a little bit nervous of my own successes, uh, or my platoon successes, I should say. Um, so I would read attacks before I went to combat, uh, and, and try to model some of, what, what Rommel talks about in, in that book. And then uh, I would be more familiar with awards. I think uh, I didn't have very strong company leadership. And I think, uh, you know, I had a senior staff NCO in the company telling me, uh, you can't, you can't write any more awards for your people. And, you know, these freaking Marines were, running through minefields and charging machine guns and doing crazy heroic shit on a daily basis. And then I get this admin first sergeant telling me that, you know, you can't write any more awards because you you've exceeded the make believe quota or whatever. And uh, so I, I feel like I, I, I wish I, there's no excuses, right? I, I, this, it's not OJT, you know, when you're an officer, it's, it's you lead and be prepared to lead and uh, both administratively, tactically, technically. And so I, but I think I could have, I, I wish I would have uh, had a little bit more uh, 
administrative savvy and, and a little bit more moral fortitude to kind of say no, like, and so I, I, I know, and, and those, and those are real moral injuries. Like I know guys, you know, people are, awards are such a controversial subject. And some people say, Oh, you're just doing your job. Some people will say, Oh, like, and you know, it, it becomes this pissing contest. It's always a shifting goalpost. It's always somebody has this hierarchy. It's a horrible, negative, cynical subject to touch. Uh, but I'll tell you that read any Vietnam book and it's in the first hundred pages, it's going to talk about medals five times. And from my experience, the thing that still hurts guys on the inside is, is a medal and, or lack thereof, or didn't get the right medal. And so I think, uh, I, I would have, those, those would starting there and we could probably spend all night talking about the things I maybe should have fucking done better. But, uh, I, I, uh, I think, Overall, I, I, what I learned about myself is I, I can effectively shoot, move, communicate under fire. So like that's, I, I think I, I fit the bill, you know, but uh, I think I, of course there's, there's, there's a couple and it's, and then, and more than anything, it's those ones that, are finite like uh you're not getting that person back and so uh of course there's a couple things that i wish i'd done better on, on, on those days how does your military career end do you know what the ending looks like do you want to stay for 20 do you are you on the the back nine at this thing I and mean, what, what, what are your next moves i head to the naval war college to go to command of staff uh next up in newport i'm headed there this summer you know Never in my wildest dreams could I imagine that the Marine Corps is going to send me to uh, three different universities to get two different master's degrees that they have. Um, but uh, it's I've been very fortunate after spending ten years driving hard, fast in the infantry to to have you know four years here in the middle of my career to kind of think and learn. And the Marines are paying me to use my brain. They're always paying you to use your brain, but. Um, I think I, I think I would like to be a battalion commander. And so that, that, that would put me, you know, at 20 and I don't have any ambitions beyond battalion command. So, uh, I think it would be great to have 1200 men, uh, leading an infantry battalion. And I think I would be very content retiring after that. Uh, but you know, who, who knows? Uh, the Marines say to you, Tom, we need you to deploy again. Do you have any hesitation whatsoever? Uh, in a fucking heartbeat man uh, yeah that's my shit i mean i i my i the the junior marines being with the junior marines i mean that is what sustains me that is my lifeblood that's what fills my cup that's why it keeps me in the seat it's what keeps me in my uniform it's and so and then you know i i i think war is a racket uh but i do love fighting uh and so if you said here's you I would say, hey, I recommend you don't do the war. Oh, you don't give a shit what the major has to say? Yeah, no shit. All right. Uh, okay, so the war is still going. All right, send me to it, right? I'm happy to go fight it because I do very much enjoy the the heat of the battle. So, yeah, that put me on the first plane. Yeah, you know there's a couple of screws loose with that statement, right? You know, you probably when – you, when you go into the doctor, make sure you mention that part to them, see what, see what their response is. I'm not a qualified clinician or anything, but, you know, sure. probably a couple of screws yeah. loose still. 
no doubt about it. Uh, it, it yeah. is, it's funny. I mean, look, I, I said the same thing to my wife. Like, I would love to take a brigade overseas, right? Like, I would love to go deploy as a brigade commander. And she looked at me like I was crazy. You're going to leave the kids? You're, gonna, you're just going to go? I'm like, yeah. I mean, because it's kind of what the life that we've chosen, right? Like, it, it, it comes with it. I'm not putting it over my family or my kids, but this is part of the, the whole operation, you know? Um I wouldn't, I, I'm not like out there actively looking for one, but if I was in the spot and they said you're going, I would never, wouldn't even hesitate. You know, it's just part of the deal. Yes, sir. So, well, look, I, I uh, appreciate your, your honesty, man. There's a lot that we began to unpack there. And, um, you know, all of your story, uh, I think resonates with, with a big part of our audience. Um, so thank you for sharing some very tough details with us. I, I can't imagine it's fun ripping that bandaid off. Um, even, and I, I hope there's some catharsis in it for you. You know, I, I hope that every time you tell it, it gets a little bit easier, not that it's going to ever make it okay, or it's ever going to make it something that, um, you know, is, is the, the pill less bitter. But, um, I think we found a lot of times in talking to people that, you know, um, especially when, when it's somebody relates to it, that, uh, there's a shared understanding and, and empathy, uh, that we all can, can, you know, rally around, so to speak. So, uh, I, I do appreciate you being so, so, uh, honest with, with all those things. But, uh, that said, you know, I, I'm also wishing you for the best of your physical and mental health going forward. You know, I mean, obviously the injuries you sustain will, will, um, have some sort of effect on you. Let's just hope we can get all those things worked out. Right. Um, and, and part of, uh, I think your, your courage in doing it, even if it is 10 years later, is knowing that there is a roll of the dice that they may tell you, look, you're unfit for duty, right? And that's the scariest thing about this whole thing. For for people who have chosen this as a a more than a career, more it's a passion. It's it's as you said, it's what fills your cup. Um, to have that taken away from you for something that's completely out of your control is a dangerous and scary place because then when you take that uniform off, it's like what's left of Tom. You know, you have to reinvent Tom all over again. And, and it goes to what you spoke about with suicide. It's it, all of a sudden now I'm, I'm something different. I'm something I wasn't before and I don't have that connectivity. So, um, you know, uh, not, not to preach to you or anything, but, you know, uh, that, I'm sure you understand the importance of that, that mental health and, and understanding where you are with all that. Yes, sir. <laughs> You're making me very nervous when you call me, sir. It's, it's okay. This is a rank-free podcast, trust me. So... Um, well, look, I wish you nothing but the best, best to you and your family, best of luck to you with, uh, and continued success with patrol base Abate. And for those who are interested, it's P B A B B A T E phonetically Papa Bravo Alpha Bravo Bravo Alpha Tango Echo.org P B Abate. Dot org is the place you can go. You guys can donate. You can check out and uh, you can uh, right there on the website. You can just fill out an option to be part of the whole thing, right? Uh, it, it's that simple. That simple. Okay. Well, again, good luck with the rest of the teaching. Uh, thank you so much for, for telling us your story, Tom. We certainly appreciate it. And as always, man, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks for having me. Simplify. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.